Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to the Desmond Elliott-nominated Paula Kakosa, author of How to Be Human. We discuss how to build tension, the importance of committing to your writing and following your instincts even if it involves divisive storytelling techniques. There was a baby on the back step, a white bundle, downward sloping, spilling two arms and a head, the head looking at the edge of the step precariously, not really looking, the eyes were shut. One hand lay beside an ear, Fingers stiffened into a fist that might have held something or lost something. Such a beautiful hand. Its sliver of palm was streaked with shimmers of purple and blue. Veins rubbed with moonlight. The surprise came not from seeing the baby, but from seeing what was around her. A baby on the back step. It was the step that was wrong. She was meant... Mary turned to check she was alone before she finished the thought. She was meant to take the child into the house. She stared down at the parcel, she thought, studying but not touching the sheath of white seersucker that lay between her feet and her door. She was thinking of the way it had been left to wait for her, so carefully wrapped. She squinted into her dark garden, half expecting someone to jump out and laugh at how she'd fallen for such an extravagant, practical joke. She was unsure what kind of person would play a trick like that. In any case, no one moved. The bushes hunched secretively. From somewhere within the block of streets, the owl hooted again on patrol from his warehouse. Just the perfect baby on the step, her mouth open as if she had said something a while back. Wrapped in white, legs shrouded inside her bedtime ghost costume, lying incredible on a slab. Mary crouched for a closer look. She ran her thumb over the marbled forehead and traced the thread of violets that wriggled across one eyelid. There should be a note, she thought, with a sender's name. Dear Mary, congratulations on your new arrival. From, well, obviously she didn't expect a note. It was the bizarreness of the situation that made her imagination busy, made her unfurl a couple of rigid fingers just to see what they held. But all they let slip was a fistful of nights. A heavy, warm breath slid down Mary's throat, so this was what it felt like to be trusted. The proof lay here, beneath the knee that gently dropped to prod an arm, warm but still. She sucked in another draught of night medicine. The air tasted clear and dry and tangy with green spice. The baby's face remained impervious, so she jabbed the arm again, hoping to surprise the eyes open, but the eyes stayed shut. Oh, Christ, she had assumed. But what if if the blood making the arm warm was not a sign of life, but life's residual warmth cooling? Hi, Paula. Thanks so much for joining us on the Rev Rav podcast. 
Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. We're so pleased to have you. Um, could you start by telling us uh, what your debut novel, How to Be Human, is about? Yes, it's about um, a woman who becomes obsessed with an urban fox. So it's set in Hackney in East London. And um, she's recently split up with her partner. And she's kind of got a job she doesn't really like. And she's sort of missing something, missing lots of things from her life. And then one day this fox appears in her garden and she kind of is rooted to the spot, transfixed by him. He's kind of an impressive guy. He's the largest fox she's ever seen. Um, and um, while she's watching him, he seems to shut and open an eye and she believes that he's winks at her. And from then on, she kind of looks out for all his sort of signs and communication. So he leaves objects as foxes do. Um, but to her, they're sort of messages. Um, and there's a young family next door who really don't like foxes. And um, it sort of kicks off um, a, 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 a sort of a battle, I guess, between wildness and civilization. Oh, so there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea. How did that? When, when, did, how did that come to you? Like, what, what did you see um, a fox that you were like, he seems like he's yeah, a story? Yeah, actually, because in Hackney we have loads of them. I mean, we have them um, on very expensive designer cushions. We have them <laughs> on graffiti, and um, we have them just hanging out in the street in the evenings. Um, and so there is a fox. Um, that comes to um, my back garden here. And um, I guess um, me and some neighbours were clearing a bit of wasteland near our houses, and this fox used to watch us work. And I was just really taken by the way, um, if we did something that like we put, we dug a hole one day, when we went back, the fox had kind of dug another hole inside our hole. It was really weird. It was like this fox is communicating with us. Um, and I was interested in the way that, as a human, you could kind of read things into the way the fox expressed itself. It's just doing its fox thing, but you could sort of feel yourself addressed um, in a kind of kindred language, and that was really what interested me. Yeah. And you and you mentioned how in Hackney, and it's I mean it's uh, it's it's probably nationwide, I would imagine that you know we've kind of taken we use animal motifs, you know in our cushions and our you know in our wallpaper which does actually feature in the book as well and the yeah. whole idea of the sort of the outside sort of coming in and sort of animals coming into our territory and us going into their territory it really sort of permeates throughout the book yeah that's right I, I'm quite interested in this idea that I think nature's become very sort of fashionable in a way and that's partly because people have we're all hankering for, for some sort of connection with with the wild things around us. But but also I think there's a kind of nature merchandising going on as well, where, you know, you're happy to sort of play the part um, or, and go and spend £3 on, on, on an egg at the farmer's market or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, and and so there, it's nature sort of become aspirational somehow, which is sort of a, a weird situation to be in. Um, so I was partly playing off that sort of quite sanitised and commercialised nature, I guess, um, um, with with the real with wild things that just can't be tamed. 
And you've, so your novel is narrated by Mary, but also at times is narrated by the fox, which is a fun right. decision. So the dialogue used for the fox is, is really clever and effective at kind of representing him as a character. Why did you, why did you feel the need to give him a voice? Yeah, um, I didn't really think about it, actually. I was writing, I took, because I work as well and I've got young kids, I took a couple of days um, holiday and rented a little cottage in the middle of nowhere and just sat out at a desk in, in this field each day writing. Lovely. And this is how I kind of got the book off the ground and wrote my first chapter. And at a certain point, it was really strange. I just had this very physical sensation in my arms that, that, that the fox was going to come in and take the point of view. And and it just happened in the flip of a paragraph. And it seemed the right thing to me. Um, I think when your instinct really tells you to do something in your writing, you should follow it. Um, and, um, yeah, I think in, I was workshopping when I started an MA, and, you know, some people really loved those bits and some people really didn't. They seemed quite divisive. And... Um, I think that's fine. I just felt I felt I had to do it, and it seemed appropriate when I thought about it as well, because foxes do take things, so it seemed right that he should take the point of view as well. Well, it, I think it works really, really well. I really enjoyed oh, the, foxes, the foxes there. And I hate to use the term psychological thriller for your book, because I don't yeah. think it really is, not in the sort of sense that we've come to understand that yeah. phrase. But there is something very deeply unsettling about it. It does. It's not meant to make you feel comfortable. I, I, I felt it. It yeah. does give you a sense of unease, which I felt quite early on from in, from my reading into the book. But I think you can read some of the narratives and the behaviours in several different ways. It doesn't seem that out there. You know, Mary's behaviour, for instance, her interactions, yeah. they could be read as, you know, she's quite lonely. And, you know, it's yeah. sort of that's that might be sort of it's what we're seeing behind closed doors. How did you go about pacing it so that you gave just enough away at, at appropriate points to kind of really kind of ramp up the attention, but without going over the top? Mm, um, well... I am not a big planner, actually. So um, in terms of deciding what the pace would be, I think I just had like a little list on my old Nokia phone of what was going to happen. It was like 10 bullet points, and that was my plan for the book, basically. Um, and I think with pacing, it's just that it is, again, a question of, um, of instincts um, because... At the time I was writing, my children were really small, like two and five, and I, I, I still read them bedtime stories, but I used to read to them every night, and um, as soon as something went a bit slow in a book, they'd start to fidget, or you just notice they're just kind of moving around a bit more, their breathing's different, whereas when you get to a really tense bit, and an author's working really hard to keep you on edge... Um, I could just feel them still and it was a very powerful thing and I was very aware of that dynamic when I was writing I wanted to try and keep you in that stage where you're state where you're sort of teetering and it, you're right it's not a psychological thriller but it is unnerving and 
and it's not really designed to comfort or to make it easy for you or so that you get let off at any point and you're kind of oh yeah she's she's mad or she's so she's just like me you kind of never really get to the point where you think either of those things you're always sort of fathoming her I think and that's that's what I wanted and, and I think that adds to the sense of unease because you sort of ended up relating to her, to Mary in ways that you sort of think god I would never tell anybody but oh my god yes I've done that yeah you know? yeah yeah I think I think that's right but then um I feel we've got to a point where we have to sort of um, diagnose ourselves all the time and um, I wanted her to sort of resist diagnosis. So how far you identify or how far she she kind of freaks you out and, you know, it's partly exploring that issue of, of you know, what our ideas of, of normality, I suppose, or what, what's kind of acceptable behaviour and what isn't. And... And to be able to do that without giving her some kind of simple diagnosis was important to me. Because I think at any point, right, you could say something, you know, strange behaviour and normal behaviour are really very close. It's half a sentence between something that's acceptable and something that's not. And um, I I like the idea that under pressure, um, you know, really, we can, any of us, go somewhere quite strange. and it's the interpretation of it, isn't it, as well? Like, you know, like one person's interpretation can be one thing and one person's can be another. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So so, um, so the book's kind of quite a comment on loneliness. We already mentioned that kind of like as well as a lot of other themes. But loneliness, especially when you're kind of surrounded by people, um, so like the fox hiding in plain sight. Why were you drawn to, to create such a solitary character? Hmm. Um... That's a really good question, and it's a funny one to answer because, of course, when you're creating a character, you don't really think about it or intellectualise it, or I didn't anyway. I had no kind of rationale. I just, the first thing I had was the narrative voice and that sense of a person who feels very closely watched and yet really not understood or who, who kind of... Um, hankers after some sort of belonging um, and I guess I think you know we are living in an age of a loneliness epidemic that's for sure and um, I think uh, you know simple human interactions are often not available to us and probably becoming less available um, with, with technological developments and so on so those issues I do feel quite strongly about and um, uh, yeah, does that answer? It, it does, yeah. Um, and one of the other things that, that really stands out is the way that you describe the natural world, both in right. a sort of sanitised way, but in, in a very kind of wild way. It really um, brought to mind Seamus Heaney in, in, oh, his, in his poetry. Oh, it really sort of took me straight back to when GCSEs. And I, I love oh. Seamus Heaney anyway. Um, but we don't see so much natural writing in fiction these days, which I think is a real shame, and I'm sure your book is going to change that. But what was it about the sort of, you know, the natural world and that type of very rich description that appeals? Yeah, um, I think you're right, because there's been a huge kind of um, explosion of nature writing, I guess, hasn't there? And, you know, there's some brilliant 
nature writing out there. Um, but but I've noticed it's not really um, um, in fiction so much, and also it's not really in cities. Um, so I was quite I, I I did notice that my book was often described in reviews as suburban, whereas actually it's it's in a city. It's just that we're not used to thinking of nature as as having a place right in the heart of the city. Whereas the truth is, of course, it's, you know, it's everywhere you walk down any street um, and there it is. So it was really about noticing things. And I wanted the natural world to feel like um, a, a very powerful kind of character in the, in the book. And so any animals that I saw in Hackney, I did put in. If I was writing and a magpie bounced on the on the um, telegraph pole or whatever, then that that went in. Um, all, all my all my friends from my street are in there. Um, <laughs> so um, I think I did. I just I love nature. I grew up um, between on the seaside, but with the downs, the South Downs in the backgrounds, always hanging around outside as kids, and always on our bikes. And I guess now I'm in a city. You have to work much harder to interact with nature and to have a kind of a meaningful relationship with nature. So that was important to me to to make a kind of an urban pastoral, I guess. Urban pastoral, I like. I think that works a lot better than suburban. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So your story is kind of um, structured around contrasts: animal versus human, like kind of the natural world versus domestic setups, being alone versus being together. Um, it seemed to us that it was um, to be infused with sex, yet so, sort of strangely sexless, uh, sexless right. even, um, to the couple with a new baby but a pristine house that hides passion and Mary who's alone, suggestions of a past relationship predicating more on violence than sex. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us, a li- tell us if sex, which is something so integral to being human, was something you thought about a lot while writing. Um, well... I guess for me the issue was complicated slightly because the relationship between um, Mary and her partner was tempestuous. So um, that was definitely part of their sexual dynamic, the kind of um, the power play between them. I guess that's true of, of all humans. Um, uh, that that the sort of they were always. I don't know, fighting for control one of the other and, and that, that's kind of true in that in the, they have a big sex scene and that's that's pretty true in there too. Um, with the fox, um, I, I didn't want, you know, she's not in a sexual relationship with the fox, it's important to, to make that clear. Um, that's, a, that's a kind of companionship, but of course the fox is a creature with his, or her, actually, she thinks he's a he. Um, but um, you know, the creature with um, with its own uh, life, um, vigorous life, because it maybe it has cubs. Um, so I guess um, it was on my mind, but it sort of runs throughout the book in lots of different forms, rather than being in the foreground. I think, apart from in the one big kind of sex scene where where so much seems to flip on um on who wins control in that scene Mm. 
it just it, it because like you said it's so you know some parts of it are so wild you know with the, yeah. with the natural descriptions and then in other parts it flips to that very and I, I sort of understand why people maybe picked up on this the idea of it's being suburban in that yeah. it's those quite suburban scenes of you know of the barbecue and the yeah. then, which obviously then without you know giving any spoilers descends it that that the tone changes even there so it's that real contrast between between those yeah. the wildness and the sort of very manicured yeah yeah and the kinds of wildness that are okay that, that we feel comfortable with and the kinds that you know take us to a, to a, to new places in ourselves and I think that was what I really was interested in um I think I came to see it as a sort of a rewilding for the main character um um, a kind of emotional rewilding, I guess. Um, really about about finding that the wildness in yourself, living with that in a way that that places you in a natural world, as well as in your you know urban civilized world, and and to find a place in both. Mm. And and sort of following on from that, you mentioned that you know we sort of talked about you know is Mary going mad or is she just you know grasping onto you know the the reality that, that she can so in a way it sort of does blur that boundary between what is you know fact and what is fiction what is real and what is yeah. being sort of imagined and sort of slightly hallucinatory mm. it's it, it really needs a delicate touch you know and to sustain that because you want the the reader to feel you know still engaged but without being sort of you know disheartened and, and not understanding you know what's going on anymore how did you manage that balance um I think I had I tried to keep lots of situations sort of on edge um and tipping and I think I quite like to um I I think I write with a reasonable amount of restraint anyway um I quite like to leave a lot unsaid and editing um, was also about um, um, preserving those sorts of gaps where, where, where the reader has to kind of bring things into play as well. So I think it, it was about giving enough and not too much because um, I wanted it to feel like an interactive experience in the way that I'd sort of seen the fox in my garden and felt I was addressed in some way or, or that it, I don't know, that it would be possible to feel that. I wanted other people to explore that, how much they themselves were bringing to the, the communication of the book, I guess. And, um, yeah, so those sorts of gaps were, were um, leaving, leaving gaps for thoughts for us to bring ourselves um, to something felt very important. And, and so thinking about the title of the book, um, do you think that writers themselves are a certain breed of human um, that maybe doesn't quite fit into the conventions of the world? <laughs> if so, what can um, you tell us about fitting in as humans? Well, um, God, I don't know, because um, obviously um, hmm, <laughs> I guess there's loads of different kinds of writers, aren't there? I mean, I know, I know some writers who are very sociable... <laughs> people whereas I've been quite glad to have a book published and feel at long last I have an explanation for why I am quite reclusive <laughs> um so I think I'm 
I'm probably quite introvert, but um, I know loads of writers who aren't like that at all. Um, so I, I guess we're all just finding ourselves and finding our voices and putting the words, our words on the page in a way that, that, that helps something. Have you, um, have, you always, have you always been a writer? Have you, have you written anything uh, like sort of, yeah, is this your first ever effort? <laughs> no, I, um, I grew up in a house that wasn't very bookish and I am not one of those people who has got like a long um, backlist of little stapled together books throughout their childhood that they made. Um, I think I was writing in my head for a long time and um, um, books were really something I discovered when I went to secondary school and um, I had a brilliant English teacher and I think really they, they opened the world for me and I, I don't know what I would have done without books and um, they gave me a kind of a path in life, I suppose. Um, definitely an education that I, I'm pretty certain I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I think I was quite shy and humble um, growing up. Um, and I would never have dared say to anyone that I wanted to write. Um, but it, I just think it was going on in my head. And then maybe... Um, some years ago, I decided I would apply for Creative Writing MA, and I wrote my first piece of fiction for my application form. And then the second piece of fiction I wrote was this book. So um, wow. I guess you'd say I'm a late starter, but it doesn't feel like that. It's just putting it on paper that's the sort of the late thing. Um, the other stuff has been there all the time. My God, Desmond Elliott Prize nominee on your second fiction attempt. That's a... <laughs> well done, that's amazing. <laughs> I think you could also argue that you're a natural writer. Um, I, God, I don't know. I think I just, words, the written words, I've always been more comfortable with it than the spoken words. Um, I guess that's true for a lot of people. If you think how people prefer texting and emailing to picking up the phone these days. Um, but certainly as someone who was quite shy, I, I found myself at ease in writing in a way that I did in, in kinds of social situations. Or, um, yeah. Um, and so with this book specifically, it was. did you write it as part of your MA? Did you come get to the end of your MA with a finished product or...? I did, I, I, because um, I was working and I needed to keep my job, I did my MA over two years and I had the first draft of this written after my first year and then I revised it in my second year and that was that. Um, and I don't think you need to do a creative writing MA in order to write, but for me the useful thing was um, it made me kind of say I was doing it and to, to have to kind of commit aloud to people who knew me that that was something I was doing actually was very important for me. And also in, men, in, in practical terms, you know, I had to sort of reorganize childcare and make sure I was giving a certain number of hours a week to writing. And it became a, a sort of a timetable part of life. And it never would have done for me otherwise. Um, but, yeah. Fantastic. Where did you do it? Where did you do your MA? Where? Yeah. Where or when? Um, I, it, at East Anglia. Oh, okay. In Amazing. 2013. So. 
Oh, we've had a lot of riffraff writers do the do the um, NAM. We just, we just interviewed Paul Howarth. Oh, yeah. right, okay, I know Paul. Oh, he, we were um, we were both together on the second year of that course, and my second year, he did it in one year. Yeah, oh, I'm so nice. looking forward to reading his book. It's, it's very good, it's very good. Is it? Yes, Excellent. I'm really enjoying it. It's very um, tinged with a lot of dread, so you kind of sit there the whole time thinking, oh, God, what's about to happen? Right. So, um, it's very compelling. Okay. very compelling. And no doubt he is equally as excited to read yours. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and what's next for you? Um, so I am um, writing another story at the moment. I don't want to call it a book because I figure that's something that it becomes when it gets sold and it's not sold yet. Um, so I'm just getting to the end of a story that is novel length. Um, <laughs> and it's... Um, partly about um, the way technology impacts on human relationships. That sounds fascinating and very timely. Sounds great. We look look forward to reading your story. (laughs) (laughs) I like that idea. (laughs) And best of luck with the Desmond Elliott Prize. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much, Paula. Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at birthlifeandriffraff.com.